It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 175, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Lauren Palmer raises 15 acres of vegetables in Smyrna, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. With year-round production, a sprouts operation, a 300-member CSA, wholesale accounts, farmers markets, and on-farm events, Bloomsbury Farm is a thriving hotspot in the local food scene in Nashville. We dig into how Lauren has built the farm from the ground up since its start in 2009, taking a deep dive into Bloomsbury sprout production, employment structures, and CSA setup. We discuss how she deals with extreme deer pressure and regulations and how she navigated a farm divorce. And Lauren reflects on the value of four-season production and building relationships with her customers and community. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned farm-based seed company proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. HighMowingSeeds.com slash Farmer to Farmer. And by Haas Tools the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. From wheel hose, precision seeders, heavy-duty seed trays, drip irrigation, and pest control, they have you covered. Get free shipping and outstanding customer service at haastools.com. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Lauren Palmer, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey there, nice to be on online with you. So glad you could join us today. I'd like to have you start off by telling us about Bloomsbury Farm there in Smyrna, Tennessee, and where exactly is Smyrna in the in the state of Tennessee, and how much are you farming, and how are you getting that product to market? Yes, so we have a 400-acre farm just about half an hour south of Nashville. We are only farming about 30 acres of that, 15 of it. We rest, 15 of it we are cultivating and harvesting. We go to farmer's markets year-round. We go to restaurants year-round, wholesale too. We recently put in a farm stand on Fridays, which has been kind of fun community building. And, yeah, we do CSA at all those the markets and on-farm and stuff. So, yeah. So 15 acres of vegetables uh that you're growing there. Is that all vegetables when you say that 15 acres? It is. It is vegetables. We do strawberries, some fruits. We do herbs, a little bit of flowers. So yes, like over a hundred different varieties of fruits and vegetables kind of all year. So yeah, we're also certified organic and GAP certified. We'll talk about that, but yeah. Great. And how long have you been farming there? So next year will be 10 years, and I'm so excited. I've already got the celebration already dreaming in my head about how we're going to celebrate that 10 years. So, yeah. It seems like when you talk about getting ready to celebrate, it seems like events are an important part of your farm's operation. It really, really is. And I, I think I am honored every time someone wants to come out here, and whether that be to buy a vegetable, to get married, to take a picture with in a like a field of our sunflowers. I am literally honored that people want to come out here and share in whatever that might be. So I welcome all of that. And you mentioned weddings on the farm. Is that a big part of your business? I actually have a like an office person that kind of doubles as an event coordinator and making sure all the contracting and money is handled appropriate. So enough to like have a person kind of do that as a a part-time gig so 
Yeah, we do about 10 like paid weddings and some other dinners and birthday parties and stuff like that too. Wow. So tell me more about what goes into putting on events for other people on your farm. I mean, because that's different than just, you know, having like a CSA picnic on your farm because you're really you're really needing to meet somebody else's expectations about what things are going to look like. Yeah, and I think we're kind of different. And all I am is a space. I don't have like a staff that is going to walk you through from start to finish. All I'm offering is a space that we call our pavilion. And then what you see is what you get. And then it's on them to kind of dress it up or not dress it up however they choose. So I just so happen to have like a fun event space and people want to celebrate here. So we kind of like book it like that. And just to go back a little bit then, tell me about how you got started in 2009. 2009, yes. So I remember dreaming with my dad on the side of uh, one of our hills here, which was a very hilly property. And he comes from a dairy farm. He worked in landscaping for all his life and is now retired and kind of helps me and uh, maintains the property alongside me. But we were just kind of like, what do you think if we, like, grew some vegetables here? And we kind of just, like, talked about where we wanted it potentially. But it was just kind of like a dream. And, like, everybody's wanting local food. We knew some um, chefs in town. And I was kind of in between jobs, kind of figuring out what my next step would be and working part-time in town. But, I mean, we just threw seeds in the ground that I thought, you know, people might want. And I enjoyed eating at home. And went to farmer's market with it, and people loved it. So the relationship kind of started from there. And did you think that this was going to grow into a full-time business for you when you started off, or were you really looking at it as being a part-time, kind of a stopgap sort of a gig? This is what I like always envisioned it to be. There's just been so many bumps along the way. Like I could not imagine myself doing anything else right now. I am truly living a fabulous life, like growing vegetables and feeding people and, you know, having them gather here. I think this is what I always like envision. I just, how I got there wasn't exactly, you know, I didn't envision all of that, but yeah, this was definitely always in the back of my head, I think. And with 15 acres of veg, again, 30 acres under cultivation, but 15 acres in any given year that you're talking about having in, in vegetables, how big is your customer base? You said you've, you know, CSA, farmer's market, stores and wholesalers that you're dealing with? We deliver to like three Whole Foods in our area, like twice a week, every week of the year. We send out an email to chefs the day before. And we ask them to please, you know, let us know like by two o'clock so we can harvest that day for next day delivery. And that email list is about 80 chefs and about 20 of them like order like on the regular and yeah, we go to restaurants. Our CSA membership is 300 in the summer and we'll do 175, 200 in the fall. So restaurants, Whole Foods, other little grocery stores around town. So it is definitely a full-time busy, busy thing. How large of a staff do you have working with you on the farm? So we have about 20 employees and then there's like a few market helpers that just maybe do like one or two like markets for us. And then we will pare down probably end of the year to about half of that. So like 20 in the, in the high season and about 10 in the wintertime. That's a big crew. 
It is. It is. Our form is kind of set up and not so particularly like it's all in one spot. So we're pretty mobile. We're um, using ATVs and little trucks to kind of move all around on the farm. And yeah, there's some logistics involved and it tends to kind of take more hands than most. Wow. And when you say it's not all in one spot, it's all on the same property. You're not dealing with multiple properties because it's all on this 400 acre property that your family owns, right? Correct. We have like a two acre plot that is fairly flat. And then we're, there's a contour field that's on one side of the hill that's maybe like two acres. So it's in like chunked up little sections, all kind of in the back part of the property. And then we've got hoop houses kind of dotted along the way. So it's not like you can't all see it in like one sitting. You have to be mobile to see it. (laughs) I'll bet your organic inspector loves that. Oh my gosh, yes. They all have, all the fields have different names. We call one Rocky Top, one like Hillside. So they all have different names and we visit all of them. (laughs) When you talk about having half of your production ground in actual production each year, you know, so again, 30 acres that you're farming on and then 15 acres that you're actually growing vegetables in a given year. What's happening with the other 15 acres? So we've got it under um, like a cover crop and we'll, we'll just, we'll rotate it. We've got five-year plans for some things and three-year plans for like other. We have had livestock in the past kind of rotate on that. We don't currently, but yes, we're cover cropping. We want to try solarizing and tarping a few little fields, but yeah, it's resting. And when you say resting and you mentioned an active cover cropping program. Yes, exactly. So we'll do like clover and alfalfa. We've done some wheat and buckwheat, vetch, those kinds of things. And what is the weather like there in in Smyrna, Tennessee? So it's been dry for the past like 30 days. Our last, or let's see, our first frost, we kind of expect kind of the end of October. And then um, our last frost is like April 15th historically and we've had a besides this little like patch of like 30 days we've had a pretty wet spring and summer and every year is kind of being different right now we can't go back on history and say let's plant now like it's been kind of ever-changing here in the last couple years so we have three wells on the property and we're irrigating with three different wells we're having to move water quite a bit so the hoop houses do help us grow year-round. With even like a double layer, we're kind of able to do that. Are you doing outdoor production year-round, or is it by the time winter rolls around, are you into the hoop houses exclusively? Yeah, there are a few things that'll make it outside for a little bit until we get like a consistent like freeze, and we'll ha- that'll be like done. There'll be some root veggies that'll make it that are over winter, but yeah, we're kind of inside most of the time, January, February. And then in January and February, your focus then is on serving your wholesale accounts? Yep, wholesale accounts. We are still going to one farmer's market like year-round. So we'll have some storage crops even too, like some sweet potatoes and like the winter squashes and things that we'll continue to take. So some of the hardier greens. Yeah, we're at farmer's markets year-round. That's impressive. It is. I didn't want to make the leap kind of right away, but when I did, that customer relationships kind of, like you were getting to know people like more like on a one-on-one basis because it was a slower market. You kind of hear like what they wanted and how they wanted it, I guess. 
and you got to know your vendors a little bit better, and it wasn't all about, you know, having three people at your booth that are all taking money and handing out produce. And so it's a, it's a little less hectic, and I think you also get respect, too, because no matter what, like rain, sun, snow, you're there, and people will continue to, like, are regulars. So I think you get the respect. I think it slows down. You get to know people, and I just enjoy it. I get a big kick out of going to farmer's markets. Well, and it's always kind of badass to be there in the middle of the winter. <laughs> it is. Yes, yes. I kind of like to tough it just to say that I did it. Yes, there is that. <laughs> now, with your CSA, tell me a little bit about how that's structured. So we, let's see, a 24-week summer season and an eight-week like mini season in the fall. So from May to October is our summer, and then October to, like, right before Christmas is the eight-week fall mini-season. We just opened up sales today for the fall and are, like, a quarter sold. And we're a whole month before we'd normally open it up for sales. So I'm super, super honored. But we do a half bushel with, like, 10 to 12 different items in it, and then a peg with, like, six to eight different items. And I am a, a sprouter, and I do herbs. That's kind of just like my shtick. A lot of people see me in Whole Foods with, like, sprouts and herbs and wheatgrass. So I'm going to put a sprout in every week, whether they like it or not, and I'm going to put an herb in every week. It's kind of um, a little, you know, Bloomsbury touch. That's kind of what we do. And then you can do each of those sizes every week or every other week. So a couple different options. Talk to me about sprouts, because I don't think I've had anybody on the show who's doing that at any significant level. What does sprout production look like when you're doing that commercially? I mean, I've done it on my kitchen counter with a mason jar. Right. And that's how mom and dad raised me. That's how I knew, like, sprouts were grown. We're just doing it in a huge tumbler on a timer that's rotating and, like, germinating in this big, like, tumbler thing. And I wouldn't suggest you get in the sprout business because of, all the agencies that are will like now be alerted of you and we get you know random the fda will come in and you're just subject to so much more having like the living the sprouts are just so susceptible to any kind of disease or something that's why the people got out of sprouting uh we bought the business from out of knoxville and brought it down to nashville but that's why they got out of it, because they saw what's coming down the line, all the regulations. But we're happily testing every batch of seed before it goes out. It's getting tested before it even comes to me, the seed is. And we're selling an awesome, like, sunlight-grown sprout. A lot of people grow in, like, a, a light, UV light kind of situation. And I like to say that ours are grown by the sun, and it, it gives them kind of a little extra green, a little, they taste better. So we do an alfalfa sprout, a sunflower sprout, a crunchy sprout, which is like a bean, like a three beans, and then a spicy mix. So, yeah, we do some fun spreading. It just kind of opens you up to um, people kind of peeking in on your business, (laughs) which has made us better all the way around, actually. So, yeah, it's been interesting. Talk to me about that. When you say it's made you better all the way around, what do you mean by that? Yeah, our systems in tracking items are how we, like, clean our work area is tightened up. We have to document everything. It's crazy documenting where it goes, what customer it's going to, what data was packed, and that helps, like, streamline even the vegetables, too, because we're using the same systems for produce as well. 
So, yes, yes, yes. We're shipping out in, like, refrigerated vehicles, and everything is super tight, and it's, it's crazy. Now, are you guys going to be fully subject then to the Food Safety Modernization Act, the produce safety rule? We are. We're already compliant currently. So I was just talking about that today, about FISMA, that we're already in line for all of that when we're ever to get inspection for that or have documents that we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. That's great. I love it when people use an excuse like having sprouts on their farm to kind of prompt everything else to fall into place and to, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the regulations, but the fact that we all have to deal with them now that you're able to use that as a, as kind of a prompt to go ahead and get everything else in line. Yep. It is definitely an excuse because we're doing it in one place. It translates. So if we were to use even like um, one of the employees to move over to the produce side Everybody kind of has the same, the overtone of this is how we kind of operate. So, yeah. And I, I think the customers appreciate that, too. There's no other farm that goes to market with me that has both the GAP certifications and definitely the FISMA, but, like, and organic. So I think that says a lot, too. I, I think that's kind of badass that we went ahead and did the dang thing. And I, that's mainly kind of what helps with CSA promotion. The chefs and other things, they just want a badass product. But for the customers, the people that are taking it into their homes, they want to know that food safety part of it. Do you really find that the food safety piece sells at market? It does, because I get asked about it all the time. Like, how is it getting prepared? What do you use on your produce? Like, how is it getting to market? Is that actually your potatoes that came out of that box? And I'm like, yes. So when I no longer have to tell people, I can just have it on the website and people kind of know and are getting used to how we do things. Yeah, lots of questions get asked, and I definitely think that sells, especially when they come in on the farm and they see how we are doing things. They see how we're washing and we're wearing certain clothes items to keep everything really clean and safe. So circling back to the sprouts, I'd like to dig in just a little bit more into what that production cycle looks like. You mentioned ordering special seeds for the sprouts. I mean, it's organic seed, but it's getting tested before it comes to us. Tested for what? For listeria, salmonella, E. coli. Yes, all of the, like, it's getting tested on a, you know, micro level before it even comes to us. And is that something that the seed suppliers are specifically selling you? This is tested seed for sprout production? Yeah, we have to buy from, like, a certified, like, grower. It has to come from, like, a certain source. Not just organic, but actually a source that's testing for these specific these specific exactly. uh, disease exactly. organisms. Okay. So then you, you buy in those seeds. Do you have to take any special precautions when you're storing those seeds? Yep, they have their own little special place. We evaluate everyone that comes in, just like with any, like, semi-load of cardboard or whatever that packaging we might have. We make sure that what we get is what we get. And then it goes in a special, one of our, like, seed coolers, and it has a label on it. And then when you take from that, you know, you have to document, you know, where it's going after you take it out of there. And then tell me about the sprouting. You said, like, a tumbler that you've got. Tell me what that looks like and how that works. So it's just like your jar at home, but it's flipped up on its side, and there's like four quadrants in this thing. And it has sprayers kind of along the middle part. It shoots out water every 15 minutes, 
and the drum kind of just like rotates. And then literally in three days, we have product to like wash and package. And then we let it sit in the sun for like a day. And then we box it up, put it in the cooler, and it's it'll last. I feel so comfortable with telling people my sprouts last like two plus weeks once they get them. So they're getting a really, really fresh product. It's not sitting with us because, you know, we grow to order. And you're doing that in in a greenhouse then? In a greenhouse, yeah, a glass greenhouse, which the first year we fried in there because the glass got really hot. Then we put in a wet pad in the back with two fans up front. Then we put two shade cloths over because it still got too hot. So, yes, the other people that had it weren't growing in this type of situation, and uh, we just did it and kind of figured it out as we went along. And then for packaging, are you just putting that into plastic clamshells? Yes, and I've recently looked into getting a non-plastic container, but I think people want to see the sprouts. I'm going to have still continue to use plastic. Yes, and then we use like a label that kind of um, closes them tight. Yeah, so at my markets, I'm going to go paper and no more plastic. I would like to use it as less, you know, in the business as possible. But for sprouting, we yeah, we use a... Like a cup is what they call it for the the sprouts to grow in. How does the sprout business, I mean, because what you're describing is a very different workflow than growing vegetables outdoors. So tell me about how that actually fits into your overall business. So the sprouts almost help fund some of the vegetables outside. So we're able to keep staff year-round because it's something that happens every week, two or three times a week, no matter what, because the sprouts continue to grow and we continue to sell them so it keeps employees here we can move the employees like around the farm to harvest team or wherever we kind of need but it's a continual process that actually kind of keeps the lights on when we don't have a ton of outside produce happening so fortunate to kind of have that buffer always and how long did it take you to get good at doing sprout production to get good at it you know, I feel like the last couple of years, I'm like, all right, I think we've got our growing condition kind of down pat. I think we've got the knowledgeable staff that we need. I'm able to sell it and tell people how we do it really well. So, yeah, actually just the last couple of years, sales have been, like, really great. So people are, you know, not scared of them as much anymore and happy to continue to grow them for them. So to turn a little bit here to your outdoor production and maybe dig into that some, because 15 acres is not a small amount of land. You mentioned you've been having to do a lot of irrigation. So maybe let's start there. What are you doing for irrigation there at Bloomsbury Farm? So we have three wells, like I said, and we have three cisterns that we're like filling up all dotted along the property as well. So big like blue piping kind of going and filling up a tank overnight and then we're able to water that another field across our driveway the next morning yeah so it's almost like a full-time job for someone to make sure that all of our little plots have irrigation and there's not like gaping holes in any of the tape and then you know a well goes out or the pump gets shot by lightning or whatever So, yeah, it's kind of a full-time job irrigating and making sure that um, everything is staying, like, hydrated. Are you relying on drip irrigation for most of your needs? We are. There's maybe, like, one of the acres that we don't. And then in our greenhouses, we do some overhead 
irrigating, which it keeps everything a little bit cooler in some of the hoop houses that way. But yeah, a lot of it's drip. Is that because of water limitations that you have, or is that a preferred technology for you? That has worked for us, and I haven't been told any different, really. So it's working, and yeah, that's what we're continuing to do. Right. And obviously, you know, with 15 acres of vegetables, you're doing, you're a tractor-based operation. We are, yeah. So we will, we have a Jang seeder that we'll push by hand, but yeah, we have a a two-seeder planter that we do like our big plantings on. We've got a few tractors for sure. And mechanical cultivation then? Yep, we've got a little cultivating tractor, yes. Okay. And you've got staff that are running those that equipment, or is this something where you're the one who's actually out there doing that sort of work? I have not even driven on the little cultivating tractor. It's the cutest one, and I want to be on that one. But, yes, I've driven. We have our red tractor. I will do that to move stuff around. But, yes, I have staff to run, and it's just a couple of guys that we trust to, to be on to be mobile like that. Yeah, but I'll do the harvesting, the washing these days. Yeah. So it sounds like pretty straightforward tractor farming operation then. Yep. We're just dotted all over the place and kind of having to keep the fields rotating in a kind of a scientific way. But yes, it is. That's how we're working. And you mentioned that you head up the harvest and the post-harvest handling. And you also mentioned that you guys are packing out product. You're getting orders one day and harvesting getting that packed and ready to go for delivery the next day. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like. I used to just get orders like by text message or when I remembered I would send an email out, but it's really kind of been nice to have like a list of people and, you know, I send it out before, you know, a certain hour in the morning and then it's a little more scientific now, which is it streamlines. I don't get an order at eight o'clock at night and, you know, a chef needs this for tomorrow. You kind of have to teach the chefs that this is how you want to operate to get the best product and, you know, at this particular time the next day. I like to see all the veggies before they go out and make sure that, you know, we're sending the best stuff. So what does that pattern look like for you? When are you getting in your orders and when are you doing your harvesting? So we will send the uh, what's available on a Monday, 8 o'clock-ish, and then we hope to get orders in before 2, and we harvest all in the afternoon and pack and ship out. My truck leaves out here at like 6 in the morning on Tuesday, and then we do that again Thursday for a Friday delivery. And then we harvest all day Friday for the farmer's market, uh, the two farmer's markets on Saturday. Interesting to me that you're doing that harvesting in the afternoon in Tennessee. That's got to be a hot operation. It is. It is. Some things that we know we're going to get orders on, like the kales, like we'll like pre-pick those like first thing in the morning because I know I'll sell 10 cases. So they kind of know that we'll, they'll harvest that first thing when, they, when like staff gets here. But yeah, some of the other items will like wait and it does get a little hot. And then what do you have as far as post-harvest handling facilities then for getting that stuff cooled down? We have our brand new packing barn. So we were doing it kind of in a hallway of my one barn. Then we built uh, our packing shed and we have a dock that all the vegetables come in off the dock. And then we have water tanks that we're cooling down in, then putting them in like the appropriate cooler. So we have like a 35 cooler and then we have like a 55 cooler 
so depending on the vegetable, it kind of it gets put, you know, appropriate. So great. And then, are you doing a lot of mechanized washing of your produce? We will do like the squashes and cucumbers, some peppers, melons. Maybe we have a conveyor washer to do some of that. But then, like the greens are getting like dunked in a tank, and it's all kind of by hand. Even the conveyor, we're having to push them through, so it's still very like hands-on. I've seen this carrot tumbler that I kind of want to get that washes like the root vegetables down. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's all like by hand. And is that something that you're involved in in a hands-on way? The processing once it comes here. Yes. Yes, I'll be involved with that. Yeah. Make sure that we grade, you know, things out and like this restaurant will be okay with like a little bend in the cucumber. They're fine with, you know, just making sure that everybody's getting what they signed up for. And are there specific crops that you guys are specializing in for outdoor production? This year has been kind of fun. We've had some more requests for like the forage stuff. So we do like we've sold wood sorrel for the first time, purslane kind of in a bigger way this year. We have sold, like, our wild blackberries for the first time, just some other, like, forged items, which have been kind of fun. And I feel like I show up to market with the purple carrots that everyone loves and the green stripy tomatoes. And, yeah, so I like to kind of keep people guessing and, oh, what does that taste like? And that looks different. And so I do like to keep it kind of fun and guessing at the markets and a chef offering. I think that's a lot of fun when you can do that. And I think one of the advantages of being able to be hands-on and, and be the person who's there representing the product. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, yes. You get to tell them, like, this is what I did with this last night, and this crazy new cucumber has a tangy flavor, you know, this year. So I like educating, and people get excited about taking our products home. So it seems like, from what you're saying, that you're more accessible from a marketing standpoint than maybe a lot of farmers would be, that you're you're really out there hustling the product, whether it's at farmer's market or, or through your wholesale accounts. Yeah, absolutely. I want to continue to be the face and like a go-to person for like questions. I go back and forth between the two different markets and I'm always here on Fridays to help if people want like a one-off tour to kind of see where the tomatoes are growing this year. I think I'm pretty reachable to chef. I feel like a chef is going to pass my name along to his buddy because they know that I'll answer the phone, whether that be like a Facebook message, an Instagram message, or just like a text message. Like I feel like people trust that I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to say I have this or I don't have this and I'll deliver when I, I say I am. I think that's so fun. Like I love the relationships that I can be a go-to for people. And then I'm going to, you know, go eat at their place. So it's super fun. It's always one of the advantages of working with restaurants, right? Right. Yeah. I'm super friendly with people who get to make some awesome stuff with my food, and then I get to go enjoy it. All right. Great. With that, we're going to stop here and get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Lauren Palmer from Bloomsbury Farm in Smyrna, Tennessee. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. 
Visit High Mowing online to request a free copy of their 2018 seed catalog, read about the company's mission, and browse over 700 organic varieties, including tried and true market standards, all new high-performance hybrids, and beloved heirlooms. Use the code F2FSEEDS when you purchase online or mention the code when you call to receive a 10% discount on purchases of $100 or more. Visit highmowingseeds.com slash farmer to farmer or call 866-735-4454 to get started. The podcast is also brought to you by Haas Tools, the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. Keep rows weed free with our time-tested American-made wheel hose and the best wheel hoe attachments. Their precision seeders have a proven seed plate designed for planting a wide variety of seeds, and you can grow the best transplants with their heavy-duty PropTech seed trays and keep your crops healthy with our drip irrigation and fertilizer injection systems. Haas also provides a comprehensive selection of conventional and OMRI-certified pest control products at the most affordable prices. Free shipping and outstanding customer service. Shop online or request a free catalog at HaasTools.com. And we're back with Lauren Palmer from Bloomsbury Farm in Smyrna, Tennessee. So, Lauren, you mentioned that on Fridays you guys have an on-farm store where people can come and, and buy your vegetables, right? Yeah, it's very a loose farm store. I mean, we have it's like a farmer's market set up in the, our packing warehouse where we have, as the vegetables are coming in, they're also available for sale right then as they come out of the field. So we just have them ready for people to pick up and purchase. So the fun thing about the farm is that it's our number one spot to pick up because you also get to pick what you want in your CSA basket. So when you go to pick up at a location in town, it's already ready already. When you come here, if you don't want kale this week, you can pick a chard. And so they're picking the different items and they're the most fresh. And then the kids play in the lawn. And we'll go tour, we'll pick a cucamelon that no one's ever seen a cucamelon, like in one of the hoop houses that are close by. So we will occasionally have some food out here, and we have a beer sponsor out at the farm. And, yeah, it's just kind of like a backyard hang with the side of, like, pick up your CSA. Well, how fun. Yeah. Now, do you have livestock as well as the vegetables? We have about 60 chickens, no livestock. We've had them in the past, but don't have any animals. We've got my horses that I used to show when I was in high school and college on another part of the farm, but they just kind of hang out right now. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that the farm got started, you and your dad sitting on the hillside and kind of visioning what the farm might look like. And so it seems like the farm really is a family operation. Absolutely. We had neighbors kind of want to like purchase items directly on the farm. And that's kind of how the farm Fridays with the family twist thing kind of happened. So we started like appeasing like a few people and they were like, you know what, we need like dedicated hours for this. So it's not just people just kind of drive up whenever. So we do a, a farm Friday when people pick up their CSA, and um, we kind of have some, like, backyard, like, hangs, and there's usually about the kids outnumber the adults, so it's definitely a lot of fun. And then is the farm, do you own the land, or is the farm owned by your family? So the farm is owned by mom and dad, and then I'm lucky enough to live and work here, so yes. Okay. Do your parents live there also? They do. They have a separate driveway from me, so I don't cruise up by them. 
every day. But, yes, it's kind of a, a fun property that uh, they live on one side of the hill and I live on the other side of the hill. That's kind of a nice distance for grandparents. It is. It is. It's, I'm very fortunate to have mom and dad here to help with my four-year-old. And, you know, just there's a limb down in the driveway and dad's always here to kind of like, you know, do some heavy lifting and stuff. So, yeah, it's super, super fortunate. That's really great. Now, you mentioned a four-year-old daughter. Are you, do you have a partner there on the farm? I do not. It is her and I that reside on our side of the hill. And I had a partner in the very beginning, and that did not last. But, yes, it is her and I, and we are two strong ladies, so that's for sure. It's a lot of work to run a farm and single parent. It is, but I have some fabulous staff that I feel like is family. So um, a couple of them just live up the road and so, so fortunate to be able to call on Danny and Dana at pretty much any time. So they've got some little ones, too, that Palmer has grown up with. And, yeah, so very, very fortunate to have some great people and family and, of course, the customers that keep coming back. So you started the farm with a partner and then that changed. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition and how that worked for you? Yeah, so people used to see him and I at the farmer's market in the very beginning. So for him not to be there and having to educate people of, like, why it didn't work out, that was a little bit tricky. But I was always the vocal and would go do, like, deliveries and stuff. So you would see me more anyway. So when it was no longer and, that you know, that I was the business part of it, you know, helped, obviously. And it was, like, my family land and... I was going to take it and run with it from there. So, yeah, but transition and, like, the growing, figuring out on your own was definitely made me stronger. So, yeah. Did you guys have a division of labor on the farm where, where you were really working on the, the harvest and post-harvest handling and, and he was working on the production side of things? He would do, like, the heavy lifting part of it, and then I would do the marketing and take it from there. So, yeah, there was, there was definitely a division of that. There was a couple, like, farm managers that we've gone through trying to figure out a good fit for, you know, the team. So, you know, almost year 10, and I think we're kind of, like, clicking along now. <laughs> so those gaps, and, and I think any time, you don't care whether it's a partner who's farming or whether you are employing a farm manager or have somebody in a significant role in a farming operation, when you have those gaps open up, those can be really hard to fill. Right, yes. And plus it's just a tumultuous time in your life anyway, so it kind of like intensifies everything. So you're trying to fill like some big uh, shoes and then to realize that your role is just as big but just in a different way, yeah, it was, it was a lot of learning. And you mentioned now that you've brought in a farm manager. What does that look like on your farm? So it's very like cohesive and like he gets how I like to like grow and sell like what kind of like different items and you know to be the first to market with some really fun things we totally are in sync yeah so it's been good but literally we've probably gone through five trials of different people so yeah personalities you know you got to click with that person that you're day in and day out with and lucky to have found the match here. And how do you have that structured? I mean, 
you talk about kind of being clear with him about, well, we want to be first at market with the products that we want to be first at market with. How do you guys communicate about that? And how do you work through kind of the planning process so that your manager knows what to do? I ride around with him like every Monday. We kind of like tour the fields together, what's going to be ready so I can educate what's going to chefs and to market. We talk about, you know, what it needs to look like when it comes out, you know, for harvest crew, you know, I see him every day. You know, we cross paths like every day here on the farm. So it's just kind of this like symbiotic thing that like happens. But yeah, I don't know how it would work any otherwise. Yeah. Do you have a lot of written communication or is it mostly verbal? It's mostly verbal. We'll sit down and like do the seed catalog together. And if we have a problem, we all kind of come together. Okay, what are we going to do? We, we lost this field and then we all kind of like come together. I've got another guy who helps on the like management side of the production team too. So yeah, it's, we all just group up and kind of make a plan and go from there. So yeah, we're very tight. I mean, it's tight-ish quarters. But yeah, we're talking like on the daily, every day. And so with 20 employees on the farm, and you're talking about delegating some fairly high-level responsibilities, are there other places where you've delegated at a higher level and, you know, so people aren't just vegetable pickers or, or weed pullers? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm lucky enough to have a couple of CSA members term farm employees. So I've got one of my lead harvest guys who was a CSA member last year, like, want to come work on the farm. And I'm like, great. So, and then another one who lives up the road who's a CPA was looking to get out of her big corporate job, come work with me. So now she does the accounting part of it and, like, does the events on the side. So, yeah, it's pretty sweet to have some super educated people kind of make it all click. So we all kind of do what we're best at doing, so which is super, super lucky. It's really great. And what does retention look like on your farm? Are most of your employees staying with you for a while, or do you have a lot of turnover? I feel like this year I've asked a couple people to stay on for winter, and they're just like over the top. Like I kind of preface the harvest team that, hey, this is when frost comes, you guys will be the first to go. But I've asked two of them to stay on, and they're just like over the top. So just some really enthusiastic, like, in-it-to-win-it type of people. So, yeah, like, the harvest team will get different. Like, the college kids will come, and then they'll go back to school. I mean, and there's the driver situation. That's a whole nother, like, because we have weird, like, we drive three days a week, and so it's kind of weird hours, some heavy lifting, so that doesn't always work for everybody. But I've got a great driver now. So that's kind of where I see the most turnout is in, like, the driving, actually. But yeah, most of the staff is like is in it to win it, which feels so good. It's really great. The driving and logistics aspect must be kind of interesting because you mentioned that you've got 80 different restaurants that you're sending out your fresh sheet to, but only 20 of them that are ordering on a regular basis. So you must have a kind of a different route every day. Yeah. And then like one guy will order this week and then not order the next. And then he gets shifted to West part of Nashville and then he's back over to East side but he's friendly and knows where to go. And I, I trust him to actually be the face who's delivering it a lot of the time. And then like special deliveries, I'll go out and make myself. Yeah. So it could be, you know, one part of town one week and the next, the other. And how many delivery trucks do you have running? Is it just the one? 
We have a van that is the, like a little passenger van that we've like fitted to have refrigeration in it. And then we've got a, I want to say like a 16 foot box truck. And then we have our very first box truck that we had refrigeration and we took it off of that one and put it on a new one. So the old box truck just goes to one of the markets on like one Saturday, but it's kind of nice to have just in case the other one goes down. So yes, Two, like, legit delivery vehicles and then one kind of, like, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. You can't discount the one on the side too much. You cannot. Like, you know, it is, like, crucial. It's crucial. I'm looking at a map of your farm. It's actually, you know, an overhead photo of your farm. And I see that you're completely surrounded by woods. And not just, like, some trees, but, like, woods. Yeah, these are dense. They have not been mills or anything they are thick like woods and there's lots of creatures that live in the woods all of our fields have eight foot deer fencing around them because i wouldn't be in business if i didn't have that protection and even that they will climb under they will go over so we just try to do our best to like deter them with the fencing Wow, that must be a lot of work for upkeep and maintenance on that. Is that electric fence? It's not. I try to get the least like intrusive looking, but it's black mesh. It's plastic. But yeah, we even have a deprivation permit to take some of the, the naughty ones off that still continue to get in our fields out of season. So I have a guy who maintains the property in that particular kind of way to watches the fields that are, you know, have the sweet potatoes in them that they love or the strawberries and just protect them as much as we can. And that must be an important part of your GAPS plan because I would think that that would be something the inspectors would be all over with the kind of population density that you're talking about. The GAP inspectors, not really. Really? Yeah. Oh, you mean like deer getting in and like damaging the crop? Or defecating on your crops, yeah. No, if anything, they care about, like, once we harvest it, that the harvest vehicle is, like, covered. I don't remember that being an issue. It was kind of like, well, we're harvesting, how is it treated? So I guess the deer fence is enough for them to be like, okay, that's how they take care of it. But behind the scenes, they're still getting into the field. What other pests are you dealing with? Do you have other mammals that are causing you issues? Yeah, the raccoons love that corn and a groundhog in particular that we have trapped and relocated lots of those guys. But other than that, uh, we have a lot of annoying turkeys, but they don't really do any damage. They just kind of don't move when you're trucking down the road. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I would think the fences probably do a pretty good job of keeping the turkeys out. Yeah, they do. They do. You've put a lot of infrastructure into the farm. When you talk about fencing and a, and a nice packing shed and the kinds of high tunnels and greenhouses that you've got, has that been something that you've had to finance from the outside? So all the hoop houses have been funded by a state program, and then we're able to get a big chunk of it back because we're organic certified. So we get, yeah, a large portion of it back, but you have to pay that up front and then, you know, prove that you've gotten it up and it's like operating and then you get the funds like after the fact. So yeah, working with the bank to kind of have some like mobile, like the funding has been kind of interesting and, and the CSA kind of helps with that. So you, you get that money in like May or whatever 
and then that way you can put some of the those funds into like some of the infrastructure. But yeah. When you're working with the bank, have you run into any resistance because you're a female farmer? I'm lucky that my mom has cultivated a relationship with a, a bank in town, and then they're like behind me 100%. Even to the fact that I get in, invited to their talks and different things, they are so proud of what they've been able to kind of help out here. So yeah, nice. You've actually been able to use that to your advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Great. And are you in a farming neighborhood? No, it's a very, like I said, like rocky and like hilly and wooded. So there's uh, a cattle farm across the street. There are no other like vegetable farms super close by. I think the nearest one is like a good 20 minutes-ish away. Another reason why there's been three purchases to the land. Another reason why we continue, my family continued to purchase is because thought of, you know, subdivisions or something coming back here. And that's when we turned it to vegetables. And what's the market like in Nashville? It is booming. So I'm very lucky to live in a city. Like I'm half an hour to town. If a chef needs something in half an hour, not that I like particularly like to go on the fly, but I can get to most of them like within a half an hour. So lots of new restaurants. Everyone wants to know the farmers and they want to be proud of where they got it from. So yeah, it's all very like locally minded and like conscious, like eaters and buyers. That's really great. So you, so you've had a pretty easy time of getting your product into the marketplace. Yeah. And there's so many other little farms like popping up and doing it too. And I like, I'm loving it. I love that. So, and so across town is doing like mushrooms and they're killing it. And then you know, I love to see how what people are coming to market with and new little farms popping up across town. So I think it all makes us better that, you know, I see so-and-so's tomatoes and they're killing it. And I, I love that. Do you see your farm continuing to expand and grow? I do. So the dreamy part about, you know, now that I'm in a position, I get to kind of like dream about what is the next thing, which is super cool. So I see potentially doing some kind of like forest school or preschool for small kids here. So I think that kind of completes the full circle of Bloomsbury, getting more people to stay on the farm and educating them maybe even in like how we farm or how we prepare the food, doing like more classes out here. Yeah, I think that's all a part of Bloomsbury's potential. So, yeah. Do you think there's more acres and more vegetables in your future, or is it going to be more diversified enterprises? I think we've almost maxed out the land part of it, unless we maybe get some of the livestock in to be, like, in the woods more, or maybe we do, like, an orchard that's on a hillside. I could see, you know, maybe a vineyard-type production here. No, I always want to be, like, vegetable first. I don't want to be known as, like, an event space. I want to be known as growing some awesome stuff and getting it to anybody, getting it to our neighbor, getting it to a high-end restaurant in Nashville and having it to like the general public at Whole Foods. So I get a kick out of as many people getting it as possible and just amping it up a little bit and being able to do a salsa class in a certified kitchen would be awesome. And having a preschool class, you know, during the school year would be awesome. 
So with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round, but first we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor and then we'll be right back. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges that organic growers face and combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant science and intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply. Vermont Compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Oh, and the donkeys are the real thing. You get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Lauren, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool on the farm, I like the horseshoe hoe. I really like to use that uh, kind of in between the rows. That's my favorite. All right. Do you spend a lot of time weeding? I kind of get my therapy doing that. It's definitely kind of brings it all back uh, for me. I do love doing some weeding because you see uh, what you've accomplished. Like after that, you can look down the row and be like, I did that. So, yeah. All right. What's your farming superpower? My farming superpower? Ooh. Um, if I could pick a power? Yeah. Guarantee, like, ripeness on things. Like, to guarantee, like, this watermelon is going to be, like, perfectly, like, ripe when the customer takes it home or... I guess the ripeness of it, because sometimes I maybe pick a little young or I pick a little like later. So maybe, maybe that. And we didn't talk a whole lot about your daughter, Palmer, but what is Palmer's farming superpower? Ooh, um, what is her superpower? Just her charming, like whatever she has in her hand, like you want it. So just the ability to make people want whatever she's got. So she loves going to market and bagging things up for people and saying, come back and see us. And yeah, so all of that, that charming little four-year-old stage at a market, wonderful. Four-year-olds are great for selling vegetables at farmer's market. <laughs> right, yes. What's your favorite crop to grow? I love all the root veggies. Like, give me all the carrots. So from the greens to, you know, the actual carrot part, like I love a good like carrot or root vegetable. So carrots in Tennessee, I mean, I think of Tennessee as being a place where you have fairly warm nights and and warm days, especially during the summertime. Do they sweeten up for you there? We do. Yeah, we're able to grow pretty much all the different colors. And we had a long season this spring with the carrots and some more in the ground right now that hopes to be ready in the next like month or so all right believe it or not what would surprise people about you that I am like a divorced single mom and that I am this was my like brainchild people think that maybe this was passed down to me but yeah it's me and my fabulous team now and I'm so lucky to be doing what I'm doing so yeah Great. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Mm. You know, I didn't like when I went to a, a farming conference, like the, someone said, like, 
start small. And I'm like, no, I want to go big. I want to come out of the gate big. But I do appreciate that person telling me, like, start small and, yeah, take the little steps and not go hard. And then I was able to kind of learn better that way and not get hurt and then be like, all right, forget it, I'm done. So, yeah, the keep it slow, keep it steady has been a winner for me. Lauren Palmer, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Yay, thank you so much. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 175 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Palmer. That's P-A-L-M-E-R. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. Their support really makes it possible for the show to keep going. And so does the support that people provide directly at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate through our patronage program. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. <laughs>